Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, I have a sermon for you, believe it or not, I do. And it begins as a question. Jesus or what? John chapter 6, verse 66. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus was at the height of his popularity in his ministry in Galilee. He was drawing Enormous crowds. They were coming to hear him and to be healed. One day they'd had their biggest crowd yet. Over 5,000. And Jesus looks out at this vast throng of humanity on the Galilean hillside. And he asks his 12 disciples the question. How are we going to feed them? Philip said, well, you know, he gets out his phone and does some calculations real quick. And he said, you know, six months of wages would not even be enough so that everybody could have just a little. Hmm. Andrew then says, well, there's a boy here. He's got five loaves and two fish, but that's crazy. Jesus said, everybody sit down. Sit them down in groups of 50 and 100. Just have them sit down on the grass. And Jesus took that offering from that boy of five loaves and two fish. And he lifted it up to heaven and he blessed it. Then he began to break the loaves and give them to the disciples and the fish. And they were waiting the tables as it were. And it just never ran out it was just more than enough Philip had said oh it 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 takes six months wages and that 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 wouldn't quite be enough for people to have just a little Jesus didn't give everybody just a little he gave them all they wanted and more so when they gathered up the leftovers it filled up 12 baskets The crowd got excited about this and they tried to force Jesus to become king then and there. But Jesus didn't come to be that kind of king and so he slipped away to the mountain by himself and he spent the night in prayer. The next day he was teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. So maybe it was the Sabbath. 
And during his teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, he said, now look, folks, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And they said, well, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And they said, well, what sign do you show us? <laughs> what kind of sign do they want? When it all comes from within, what's lost is found and what's to be has already been. I mean, they've already seen him feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. But they want a sign. And then they suggest a sign. They said, well, they said, uh, you know, Moses in the wilderness gave the people manna. So maybe you could do that. And Jesus said, first of all, Moses did not give the people the manna, but my father in heaven. Secondly, they ate that bread and died. But there is bread from heaven that will come from heaven that whoever eats this bread will never die. And Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. And they said, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're saying you came from heaven? I am the bread from heaven. We know you and we know your parents. We know Joseph and Mary. How is it you are saying you are bread from heaven? And Jesus said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And they said, well, Explain, how can this be? And Jesus says this, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And they said, whoa, this is, this is hard. I don't think we can handle this. And then there was a great falling away. And many who had called themselves disciples on that day, ceased to follow Jesus. They just went back to their old lives. They just ceased to be disciples. A great falling away. And of course, that still happens today. Soon thereafter, one day, Jesus looks at his disciples, the twelve. And he asks this very there's a, sad, there's a sadness in this question. It's a very poignant question. Well, are you guys going to go away too? You going to leave me? Of course, it's Simon Peter who's going to speak up. Sometimes he gets it wrong. Sometimes he gets it right. He was, after all, the first one to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus had said, you're blessed, Simon. You didn't figure that out. That was revealed to you. And now when Jesus says, well, are you guys going to go away too? Peter says this. Where are we going to go? To whom can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. 
Simon Peter perceived the truth. This is Peter at his best. Once we really know by revelation who Jesus Christ is, the Holy One of God, we are ruined for anything else. There's no going back to the way things were before Christ. We can go away from Jesus, but we won't find a substitute for the one who alone has the words of life. It's Jesus or what? It's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or nihilism. Do you know that term? I think you should. Nihilism is a philosophy that life has no inherent meaning. You can maybe make up your own meaning and get by the best you can, but in itself, it has no inherent meaning. It is part and parcel with atheism. That this is all just some sort of bizarre accident. At best, it's absurd. At worst, it's miserable. You can try to cobble together a meaning if you like, but there isn't any inherent meaning. That's nihilism. And this is the condition modern Western culture finds itself in. Once upon a time, we'll just keep it in the West. We'll keep, you know, Europe, North America. We'll think like that. Once upon a time, the Western world was enchanted and filled with gods and goddesses. I mean, gods and goddesses galore. From Apollo to Zeus, from Venus to Cupid, from Odin to Thor, 10,000 more, but no more. It took a few centuries, but eventually Jesus cleared the field of all rivals. Zeus is out of business. Thor is no more. Jesus has cleared the field of all rival gods. Jesus is the last God standing because he is, in fact, the true son of God. So there's no other gods left. You understand? The conquest of Jesus makes everybody just one God away from atheism. I mean, who, who out there, you know, is praying to Venus these days? Or Odin or any of that stuff. Now Jesus has cleared the field of all rivals. And now it's Jesus or what? This was the lament of Frederick Nietzsche. He says, nearly 2,000 years and no new God. You see, Nietzsche, very important thinker. Very important. Nietzsche thought it was time for Western society to move on without Christianity and without God. Nietzsche wants the Western world to embrace the announcement that God is dead and to move on. He wanted to do that because he said, look, he's, this is Nietzsche and he's important. He's a harbinger of the age in which we live. He said, Christianity keeps a society weak because it emphasizes love. 
Christianity says, love everybody. Nietzsche said, no, that's wrong. Only love those that are worthy. Only love that which is worthy. Because if you love everybody, it ke- it's slave morality, he called it. It's, he said, that's all just a way for the weak to manipulate the strong. Instead of the strong becoming great, heroic gods in themselves, they're always held back because they're told that they have to love even the little people. That's what Nietzsche said. And so Nietzsche thought it's time to move on without Christianity, but, but he knew it was risky. He wasn't cavalier about it. He knew it was dangerous. Nietzsche's hope was, you know, he said, okay, we're done with the gods, but then now we'll become gods. The Ubermensch, the Superman, the Overman. These would be, and it would be, it would be men. He wasn't thinking about women doing this. He, uh, Nietzsche says, it's time for the great ones to rise up like the Greek gods themselves and replace love with the will to power, to become great at all costs. To not be hampered by this idea that maybe we ought to love everybody. Become great. And this, this was his hope for the next advance of humanity. Was the Ubermensch, the Superman. Uh, but the Superman turned out to be a Nazi. They were the ones that took him seriously. And tried to not just read Nietzsche, but live his ethic, his philosophy, his idea. And I don't know. I like Nietzsche. I really do. I, I, for whatever, I like the guy. I've read most of his works. I like him, but I just want to say, Nietzsche, with your dark fascination for violent will to power, how did you think it was going to end other than in a continent in ruins and death camps? Nietzsche's hope turned out to be a catastrophe of unspeakable proportions. Nietzsche's fear was that instead of the Ubermensch, the Overman, the Superman, we'd get what he called the last man. The last man is an incurious, entertainment-addled, utilitarian who aspires to nothing more than a bit of prosaic happiness. He describes in 1888 what today we would call the kind of, I don't know, the couch potato. Someone who doesn't have any grand, lofty, noble ideas or ambitions. They just want a little bit of happiness, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of numb the pain. Just sit there. And Nietzsche says, the last man lives the longest. The last man says, we have invented happiness and blinks. He's almost hypnotized. He's, he's dulled his senses through Whatever through narcotics, through entertainment, through whatever. We have invented happiness and blinks. That was his fear. That instead of the Superman, we'd get that. Well, this fear, his real fear was this. I know I'm giving you some philosophy, but hang in there. His real fear was nihilism. People say Nietzsche was a Nazi. No, that was, he wasn't that. That's what he feared. He feared that if we... If Western society said, okay, we're done, Jesus, bye. Christianity isn't going to be how we're going to understand our lives. We're going to move on. His fear was that there would be nothing and that we would end up in nihilism. That was his fear. And that fear is, in fact, tragically true. 
2,000 years and no new God. And guess what, Nietzsche? No new God is coming. There's none coming. It's Jesus or what? There's no new God coming. Why? Because Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has driven out all the old gods, which were nothing more to begin with than projections of our fears and hopes anyway. Jesus has driven them off and the world is his now. The world belongs to Jesus. It's his world now. Jesus is Lord. That actually means something. That's not just empty religious propaganda. Jesus is Lord. The world is his. And we children of modernity are left alone with Jesus. We can turn our back on Jesus and walk away, but there's nothing there to walk into. If we turn away from Jesus, we turn toward nothing. Nothing but the empty abyss of nihilism. This is why Peter's words from 2,000 years ago are so prescient for today. Go away? Lord, where can we go? You alone have the words of life. 50 years after Nietzsche, Martin Heidegger, another German philosopher of great significance, seeing Western culture in twilight and in trouble, said, only a God can save us now. Martin Heidegger perceives the trajectory of Western culture, and he says, only a God can save us now. Yes, but there is no a God. There's only God. It's not a new God. It's not some other God. There is no a God that can save us. There's only God, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. If we turn away from Jesus, where do we go? That's, that's the guns and roses question. Where do we go? Where do we go now? Where do we go? Where do we go now? Come on, anybody know sweet child of mine? You know, it's, it's, it's a rocking tune, but if you actually pay attention to the lyrics, it's a lament for the loss of childhood innocence. And Axel Rose is saying, where do we go now? Where do we go? Where do we go now? Where do we go? There's nowhere to go except to the one who alone has the words of life. There's nowhere else to go. I mean, the only recourse, if you're going to turn away from Jesus, the only recourse is to resort to self. Salvation by self-help. What a pathetic idea. I mean, excuse me, but... But you see that that's, that's really... We have a society that says, oh, you know... We're done with Jesus. We're done with that Christianity stuff. So only a God can save us now. But there are no gods. So what do they do? Salvation by self-help. Just go down into the self and try to, try to find a way for the broken self to heal the broken self. Try to find a way for the sick soul to cure the sick soul. We're back to the original idea of trying to make ourselves gods by ourselves. We know that we've fallen and we want to rise up and become godlike, so we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It doesn't work. Now, Jesus Christ can lift us up into participation in the divine nature because that's really the fullness of salvation. That's what Peter says. 2 Peter 1.4, that we may become participants of the divine nature. 
Athanasius, church father, said it this way. He said, God became human that humans might become divine. That is, participate in the divine nature. Rise up and really bear the image of God. But we cannot do that on our own. We can't deify or divinize or produce our own theosis. Only Jesus can draw us into participation in the divine nature, which is what Jesus calls eternal life. All that's just to say that this way, I'll put it more plain. We can't save ourselves. We need to save him, but we can't save ourselves. We need a savior. Only a God can save us now. But there is no a God. There's only God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ. If we turn away from Jesus, where can we go? There's nowhere to go. It's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or the abyss. It's Jesus or the black hole of self. Now, I am well aware, you don't have to tell me, I'm, you, know, you can tweet at me or whatever, but I'm well aware that, our, that many in our modern world will take offense at this sermon, this kind of assertion, because there's nothing that offends the modern person more than exclusive claims. But I say it nonetheless. I, I say it, let me say it in a humble, gentle whisper. It's Jesus or nothing. That's the truth. That's just the truth. You can hear it as good news or bad news. But it is the news. It's Jesus or nothing. When a culture founded in Christian revelation over millennia turns away from Christ, it feels the desolation deep within its collective soul. Such a culture is forced then to create art out of its own inner sense of despair. It's why so much modern art Modern film, modern novel, modern storytelling, modern song. It's why so much modern art in its various forms is so bleak and despairing. I mean, it's a brave attempt to do the best you can. You have nothing truly to be joyful about because you've turned away from the one who can save and there's nothing there but the abyss. There's nothing there but non-being. There's nothing there. So, you know, it's a brave attempt to do the best you can and make art out of your own despair. But is that really what we want? Do we really want a life that ultimately is no life? I mean, I'm just saying you need, a, you need a better savior than 20 episodes of Ted Lasso. You need something better than that. When it's all said and done, I want a life that is something more than a French existentialist film. That's what I'm saying. That's why I've burned my bridges. There's no going back. There's no going back because there's nothing there. And I mean, literally, there's nothing there. It's just the void. There's nothing but the void. There's no going back. I've pledged my allegiance to Jesus and I won't break my vow. Now, the Holy Spirit helps me keep that vow. 
I'm not on my own on that. The Holy Spirit assists me in that, but I will into keeping my vow. I have vowed to believe in Jesus. I have vowed to follow Jesus. And I'm not going to break my vow, and the Holy Spirit's going to help me keep my vow. Oh, I don't, I don't mean that I won't stumble and, and be imperfect. I understand that. But I'm not going to deny Christ. I'm not going to break that vow. The Holy Spirit will help me keep that vow. It's not my faith that sustains my confession. It's my confession that sustains my faith. I hope you can understand that. It's not my faith that sustains my confession. It's my confession that sustains my faith. I'm not constantly up in my head asking myself, what do you believe? 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 I don't do that. I mean, I do think about Christian faith a lot. I mean, I write sermons, lectures, and books on Christian faith. It's kind of my job. So I think about Christian faith a lot, but my faith doesn't live upstairs in my head. It's not where it is. It lives downstairs in the living room. It's not up in the attic with a bunch of old National Geographic magazines. It's down in the living room with a warm fire. My faith lives downstairs in my heart, not in my head. It's to my heart that God revealed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So when my head is assailed with doubts, it really doesn't matter because that's not where my faith lives anyway. My faith lives in a room in my heart, a room called revelation and trust. When I doubt, here's what I do know. There's nowhere else to go. So I sit with Jesus in a room called revelation and trust. Jesus has been revealed to me and I do place my trust in him. He's able to keep what I've committed to him by confession until that day. So I'll never need to look elsewhere for truth, meaning, and salvation. And that's a good thing because there really is nowhere else to go. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Amen. Stand up with me. Now just turn your heart toward Jesus. Turn the attention of your heart toward Jesus. And Jesus, we look to you and we believe in you. Lord Jesus, we live in a time and in a place where the age around us is no friend of faith. Much assails faith, mocks faith, rejects faith. And so we have our struggle, Jesus. But if you ask us, are you going to go away too, like so many? We're going to answer like the rock. 
like Peter. Where, where would we go, Jesus? It's you or nothing. There's nothing to go to anymore but you. And so, Jesus, we confess that we believe in you. We don't have all the answers. We don't understand everything. There's things we can't figure out. There's things that don't make sense, but we believe in you. We don't have all the answers to all of the questions that some skeptic can throw away, but we believe in you, Jesus. And we trust in you. You've been revealed as the Holy One of God. We know that in our heart. And we trust in you, Jesus. Now, Jesus, this week, make yourself known to these people that are hearing this word. It is the word of the Lord. Make yourself known to them in some way today. Show up in that living room in their heart. And bring them the word of the Lord. Amen and amen. And now we're going to confess our faith. Because it's not our faith that sustains our confession. It's our confession that sustains our faith. Don't go up in my head and say, what do I believe? I receive the confession. And so we confess together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, upon this foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, we come and we beseech mercy for the forgiveness of sins. Sin really isn't that big of a problem as long as we're honest about them. God in Christ forgives sins and heals the sinner, but we need to be honest about it. Or else the malady continues to grow and metastasize throughout our soul. So let's be honest and receive the cleansing. Pray with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. This is what Jesus said that ultimately led to so many disciples following, falling away. He said, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But he that eats this bread and drinks from this cup 
participates in the body and blood of Jesus and has eternal life. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you.